Following the methodology from our best-selling book, The Resilient Shield, we are delighted to announce the inaugural Resilience Retreat, which will occur in far north Queensland between Thursday the 27th of October and Sunday the 30th of October. The whole point of the retreat is to give you the ability to build your shield, to develop your knowledge and understanding of the key principles related to resilience, to enhance your toolkit and to optimise your performance. Come and be part of an incredible group of humans that are like-minded. Meet our facilitators and motivational speakers. To find out more, email us at retreat at resilientshield.com. Hope to see you there. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm sitting next to Tim Curtis. Opposite, actually. G'day, everyone. I'm Tim Curtis. And I'm Ben Pronk. And we use this podcast to talk to people who are leading lives less ordinary, mm-hmm. find out how they're going to fill their unforgiving minutes. Mm. And that concept is particularly pertinent to our discussion today with Nir Eyal, who uh, is the author, uh, amongst other books, of um, the, the recent work Indistractable. Mm. Now, Nir was born in Israel and grew up in Orlando, Florida. He earned a Bachelor of Arts at Emory University. He worked for BCG, top-tier consulting group, Boston Consulting Group, um, and uh, attended Stanford for his MBA. You ever heard of Stanford? Yeah, I mean, we cite a lot of work from Stanford professors, don't we? Ali mm-hmm. Crum, uh, Andrew Huberman. There's some good stuff coming out of Stanford. Absolutely. I visited Stanford. Mm. Yeah, design school there. It's going to be a wonderful place of the world. Yeah, it is. It's a cool, cool part of the world. Very interesting and, and clearly uh, world-leading school. But um, we're not going to talk to Nir about his Ivy League education. We're going to talk to him about uh, this concept of being indistractable. And I, I mentioned the unforgiving minute because one of the techniques he's going to talk about is this idea of making sure we have scheduled our unforgiving minutes through a technique called time boxing. Yeah, I like the fact he's also disrupting the norm. Um, you know, he breaks a bit of our paradigm on locus of control mm. or maybe value adds into it. Yeah, Put so. some thoughts into our hands on how we use... It's parts of our neurochemistry as excuses. I quite, kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that was a really crystallising discussion um, in terms of, you know, we're we using this as a crutch or can it help us to understand in order to, mm. to overcome? You know, yes, we've got this stuff going on in our brains, um, but that is not a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're, we are not necessarily slaves to that. And how do you allocate time for you, for relationships, for work, and make sure all of those things are in balance? And in order. And in that order, yeah, which is a, a great chat. And finally, um, I'm interested to ask him about boredom. Does it have its place in a productive and indistractable time-boxed life? Mm. Well, let's check it out. Let's get on with the show. So you stand by There's no afterlife but the sun shines through 
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. And Tim, I am going to try and focus. You are often into me about my distractibility, mm-hmm. my tiny little attention span, but I'm going to be on my best behavior today because... And I just saw a text and an email pop up on your phone. And I didn't even you. flip, did I? I know, it's very I good. good <laughs> I'm, I'm in the zone. Uh, but the reason I am uh, on my particular best behavior today is because we're joined by an expert on the topic near ER. Welcome to the show, Nir. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Nir, um, we're really keen to, to get into the topic of your um, book, Indistractable, and, and how we can improve that in our lives. But before we do, it'd be great to give our listeners a bit of background in terms of how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I'm what you call a behavioral designer. So professionally, I help companies build healthy habits in uh, their customers' lives. So I work with companies and healthcare and financial services and education, all kinds of ways to help people form healthy habits, typically through uh, some kind of tech enabled product. Uh, So my first book was called Hooked, How to Build Habit Forming Products. And that was all about how do you build good habits in because I noticed that uh, there's a flip side to these products that are so wonderful that we like to use them all the time is that sometimes we overuse things. And what originally started as a personal exploration, I, I was, I remember I was with my daughter one afternoon and um, we had this perfect day plan, this, some daddy daughter time. And I remember we had this activity book of different things that dads and daughters could do together. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? Mm-hmm. And I remember that question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said. Because in that moment, for whatever reason, I don't remember why, I thought it was a good time to start checking my phone. And by the time I looked up from my device, she was gone. She had left the room to go play with some toy outside because I was sending her a very clear message that whatever was on my device was more important than she was. And that's when I knew I had to reassess my own relationship with distraction. So I decided, hey, you know what? If I could have any superpower... A realistic superpower, yeah, it'd be cool to fly like Superman, but a realistic <laughs> Superman, a uh, realistic superpower, it would be the power to be indistractable, right? Mm. Like, what could we accomplish if we simply did the things we know we want to do, right? Because because we all know who doesn't. Do we really need more diet books to tell us how to diet? We know. <laughs> Stop eating so 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 much crap and get a little bit of exercise, and mm-hmm. you know, for the vast majority of people, that works out pretty good. <laughs> uh, do do we not know how to do better at work? We got to do the work, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do. Do we need to know how to build better relationships? You got to spend quality time with people and be fully present with them. We know this stuff, but we don't do it, right? That the, 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 the problem we have is not a lack of information. We all know basically what to do. The problem we have in the modern age is that we can't get out of our own way. We don't know how to stop getting distracted. And so I wanted to figure this out for myself. And so I started five years of research and writing Part of why it took me five years is because in the beginning I was very distracted <laughs> and I was having trouble finishing. Uh, but then once I once I actually got into the literature and really looked at the psychology of distraction as opposed to, you know, all this really misinformation that I think is out there about productivity and 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 the source of distraction. Once I really got into the what the psychology research says, it turned out to be much more fascinating, much more empowering than I think what is the typical line, which is oh it's all your phone's fault. Hmm. That's what we all kind of think, oh, distraction is caused because of these devices. Well, one of the first things I was surprised to learn was that Plato, the Greek philosopher, 
was struggling with distraction 2,500 years before the internet. Hmm. People have always struggled with distraction. It's not a new problem. It's not created by our devices. I would argue it's probably harder today that if you're looking mm -hmm. for distraction, it's easier than ever to find. So the struggle might be more difficult, but it has always been part of the human condition. And so if we are to address distraction and become indistractable, I wanted to look at the root cause of the problem, not just the proximal cause. I found it fascinating to read your references back to Greek philosophy. We, in our resilience research, um, were continually staggered about how much of this sort of groundbreaking research we've kind of known for two and a half thousand right. years. And and I think you referenced the, the nature of acrasia, this sort of tendency to act against our, our better will and or our better judgment, and, and the fact that the ancient Greeks mm -hmm. were already bearing down on this and, and recognizing that, that this distraction concept was linked to this. Exactly, exactly, right. That, that uh, you know, it, I think it just provides more evidence that it's not somehow a modern phenomenon. Because you hear people saying this a lot, oh, the world mm. these days, you know, the world's so distracting. <laughs> and yep. How can I concentrate because of Twitter and Facebook and my phone? And it, it, it turns out it's, it's actually not a new problem. It's, as you said, the Greeks called it a krasia, the tendency to do things against our better interests. It's been around for a very, very long time. So that means it, it, it's part of our human nature in a way. It's something that we all struggle with. Hmm. Uh, and thankfully, thankfully, the fact that humans have uh, accomplished as much as we have over the past 2,500 years, despite the fact that we feel distracted, kind of gives me hope that hmm. somebody has figured it out, right? In the past 2,500 years, people have made, uh, you know, they, they've written amazing books, they've uh, written operas, they've made scientific discoveries. So some people are able to manage distraction What's unique about those people? What separates the high performers, the high contributors from the people who constantly live their life going from one thing to the next and not accomplishing very much? And so in your quest for this superpower of, of becoming indistractable, um, your research has identified that there's four pillars of, um, of becoming indistractable. Could you um, summarize them for us, please, Nick? Sure, sure. So let's start with the term distraction. What does that word really mean? Because I I think it's a word that uh, I at least thought I understood, but when I got into the research, I, I realized I didn't understand as well as I thought. So the best way to understand if you understand something is to ask yourself whether you know the antonym, what's the opposite of that thing? What is that thing not? And so most people, if you ask them, what's the opposite of distraction, they'll tell you it's focus, mm. right? I don't want distraction, I wanna be focused, but that's not exactly right. That if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus, the opposite of distraction is traction. Of course it is. Mm. Traction mm -hmm. and distraction, right? They're antonyms. They both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. Mm. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do. Things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you said you were going to do, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is not just semantics. This is really important because I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is intent. Mm -hmm. So these days you hear a lot of moralizing, a lot of medicalizing around how people spend their time that uh, somebody going on Facebook, that's morally reprehensible, but somebody watching football on TV, that's okay. Yeah. Why? 
anything you want to do with your time and attention is fine. It's not up to anybody to tell you don't do that with your time. If you want to do it with your time, there's nothing wrong with it. As Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. Mm -hmm. So I want to give people permission to guilt-free watch Netflix, you know, read a book, meditate, uh, go on a walk, do whatever you want to do with your time, but do it on your schedule, not someone else's. Mm. Okay. That's an act of traction. Distraction, I would argue that the reason it's so pernicious is because the vast majority of distraction is not what people expect, right? People think, oh, distraction is uh, uh, playing video games or going on social media. No, that, that's an obvious distraction. It can be if that's not what you plan to do. Mm -hmm. But the most, much more common form of distraction is when we think we are doing something that is productive and really it's a distraction. Let me give you a, a great example. For years, I would go to work and I would sit down at my desk and I would uh, say, okay, today I'm not gonna get distracted. I'm gonna get to work. Nothing's gonna get in my way. I've got that big project that I have to work on, that the, the slides I need to make, the RFP, whatever it is, I need to do something this morning, I'm gonna do it. Nothing's gonna get in my way. But first, let me check some email, mm. right? Yeah. Let me just do those easy things on my to-do list. By the way, we can talk about later why to-do lists are probably one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. But let me just do those easy things on my to-do list because you know then I'll get the ball rolling, right? I'll just get yeah, started. And, and let it's me productive, just right? Yeah. yeah, that email is a work-related task, I gotta do <laughs> that sometime today. And what I didn't realize is that is the most dangerous form of distraction because it tricks you into prioritizing the urgent and the easy at the expense of the hard and important work we have to do to move our lives and careers forward. So just mm -hmm. because it's a work-related task, if it's not what you said you were gonna do with your time, it is by definition of a distraction. So now we can start painting this mental model. So we have traction pointing to one side, we have distraction pointing to the other way. Now we have to ask ourselves, what prompts us to these actions? And here we have the triggers. We have two kinds of triggers. The, 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 the most uh, easily identifiable trigger is what we call the external trigger. The external trigger are, these are all the pings, dings, and rings, all kinds of things in our environment that tell us what to do with some piece of information. Your spouse asking you for something, your boss interrupting you. These are all external triggers. They're outside of us, okay? Now that is a source of distraction that can definitely lead us towards traction or distraction, but it turns out studies find that that is the source of only 10% of our distractions, 10%. So as much as people complain about their phone, this and the news that and Twitter, this and that, that's only 10% of the time we get distracted studies find. So what's the other 90% turns out the other 90% of the time that we get distracted. It's not because of external triggers. It's because of what we call internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotions that we seek to escape. Loneliness, boredom, uncertainty, fear, stress, anxiety. These uncomfortable emotional states are the source of 90% studies have found of our distractions, okay? So now we have these four parts of the model. We have the internal triggers at the top. That's where we have to start. That is step number one, because what I discovered in my five years of research is that overwhelmingly, distraction begins from within. It is the desire to escape an uncomfortable sensation. Now, this is an icky sticky truth that we don't like to think about, right? We like to think we got distracted because of something, but the vast majority of the time we're getting distracted because of a feeling, because distraction is not a moral failing. It's not a character flaw. It's something that we haven't learned to deal 
comfortable sensations in a way that leads us towards healthy traction rather than unhealthy distraction. So mm -hmm. step number one, you master the internal triggers or they become your master. Step number two is making time for traction. We can talk about all that involves. Step number three is removing the external triggers, hacking back those external triggers, and we can talk about how to do that. And then finally, step number four is preventing distraction with pacts. And so this is all about making what we call it using a pre-commitment as a firewall, as the last line of defense to prevent you from getting distracted. So when you use these four techniques together, master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs, anyone can do this. It sounds like a lot. If you just did one small thing in each of these four categories, it will change your life. You will mm. finally start doing what you said you're going to do for yourself and living the kind of life that doesn't lead to regret. So you stand by and why You all make me want to cry But in the end you'll feel no pain There's no afterlife but the sun shines through the rain Our weird bodies near, however, are propelled on neurochemistry. And a lot of what you're talking about in, in terms of reward pathways, we're incentivized and rewarded for the quick wins, for the like, the retweet, to pick up the phone and see how many new followers we've got. Can you talk to neurochemistry inside that mix? No. <laughs> I'll tell you why. And neither could I. And I'll tell you why. We, we way overdo it on the, on the neurochemistry stuff. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's actually a real danger to it. I'll tell you why. So I, I know all about the neurochemistry stuff. I, you know, I, it, in, in both my books, I talk about it. However, it's really dangerous. And I'll tell you why. First of all, there's very little that we really understand. Okay, the, the brain is still very much a mystery. Mm -hmm. And so when we start to act like we really understand, uh, you know, how all these, the, the, these neurotransmitters make us do this and make us do that, number one, it, it, it's false. And it mm -hmm. over, it places too much weight on something that feels outside our locus of control. It feels like, you know, you know we hear, you hear that one of my, that one of the things that makes my skin crawl, and thank God you didn't say it, but a lot of people do is the dopamine squirts, mm. right? People check Instagram because of the dopamine squirts. Well, dopamine is released with just about everything. When you give someone a hug, you get dopamine. When you learn tennis, you get dopamine. There's all kinds, dopamine mm. is not cocaine, okay? Mm. It's a whole nother thing. And, and you know, in fact, there's a, there's a really bad neuroscience joke that uh, you know, what's what's the purpose of of uh, what's the purpose of dopamine in the brain? The purpose of dopamine in the brain is to confuse neuroscientists, <laughs> because it turns out dopamine does a lot of things. It's not it doesn't make you do stuff. Mm. Okay, it simply reinforces the myelin sheaths around your neurons that reinforce the behavior so that you can learn an action. So it's involved in in habituation. Lots of things it's involved. It does not compel you. It doesn't make you do something. It doesn't make you into an addict in any way. But the popular perception and the reason people hold on to this notion is that when I can put blame on something else, right? It's Mark Zuckerberg making me do it because he's manipulating my brain chemicals. That leads to learned helplessness, right? I, I, I can't do anything about it. They're mm. addicting me because of the, the dopamine. <laughs> it's a, it, externalizing. The locus of control. Yeah. yeah, I like that locus of control link. We do talk a lot yeah. about that, and I've never thought about neurochemistry being an excuse. Mm. But yeah, it, it probably can be used as an excuse. 
One one thing I have found, and, and stand fast whether it's the, the the neurochemistry that making me do it, but even just an understanding of you know those kind of patterns in your brain uh, from a resilience perspective, it can really help. And and for me. Uh, you know, understanding, ah, that's my old friend jealousy, or ah, that's my amygdala yeah. firing. And um, I imagine with uh, the, the internal triggers, uh, you talk about sort of exploring those negative sensations with curiosity instead of contempt. I mean, mm. even that understanding, oh, this is my brain doing something, you know, it's it's dopamine motivating me towards something, but it doesn't mean it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It doesn't mean I have to do this. Right. Exactly. I, I think that so there's a right way and a wrong way to consider it. Right. I think a lot, for many people, it becomes uh, something that they're powerless in their minds to resist because it's so overpowering. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that type of attitude is, is very unhelpful, especially when you start throwing around, you know, pe- people uh, you didn't. But many people will toss around these terms like addiction. Well, addiction is a pathology. Right. Addiction is not, ooh, I like it a lot. Right. We're not freebasing Facebook. We're not injecting Instagram. We're not uh, snorting Snapchat. Mm. <laughs> We're talking about little apps on our phone, people. Like, we need to put this stuff in perspective. Uh, but when we have this attitude of, oh, it's addicting me, right? Addiction it, it does affect part of the population. About three to five percent of the population does struggle with addiction. But 95, 97% of us don't. <laughs> and so we don't need to compare ourselves to that because one, it's very disrespectful to people who actually struggle with this terrible pathology. And two, it's very disempowering when we say to ourselves, it's, it's, it's hopeless, it's useless, I can't do anything about it, it's got mm. control over me, then what happens, right? It's like Henry Ford said, whether you believe you can or, can or you can't, you're right. you're right. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when we believe we're powerless. So that's why the book is titled Indistractable. Indistractable is supposed to sound like indestructible. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be empowering. It's meant to be, wait a minute, actually, there's a lot we can do about this, mm. right? And in fact, people for millennia have overcome distraction by maturing, by maturing, right? So there's lots of things that are natural to do that we overcome, right? So when people say, well, you know, the modern world today, it's, it's not natural. We weren't, we weren't built this way, that the, that the, 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 these distractions are leveraging our, 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 uh, our worst instincts. And it's the lizard brain. By the way, that's, there is no such thing as a lizard brain. Anybody who's actually in the field of neuroscience knows that that's complete rubbish. It doesn't exist. But we like to use these terminologies because they're very emotionally charged and they absolve us of responsibility. Hmm. But there's all kinds of things, right? Like you, you had to get toilet trained. It's totally natural to defecate wherever you want. But you know what we do as civilized human beings? We change, we adapt, we learn, we overcome so that we and society is better. And that's exactly what we're doing with these distractions. We can, we, we don't, we can use these tools to get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. So, so between attraction and distraction is this zone of empowerment, maybe motivation, which relates back to the limbic part of our brain. Um, Dr. Andrew Huberman talks about limbic friction. We've got to overcome these frictions to drive us to do things. You know, the difference between what you say you're going to do and what you actually do, the bit in the middle is governed by limbic friction. How do we get motivated to push ourselves to improve? Yeah. So it starts with understanding your values. So that's where it begins. Mm-hmm. But that does, that's not where it ends. Yeah. It ends with turning your values into time. So let, let's spend a little bit of time with values. So I define values as the attributes of the person you want to become. And so I give people these, these three life domains to consider so that they can f- turn their values into time. Here's the thing. When we talk about motivation and distraction and people's plans and regrets, when we ask people, 
what did you get distracted from? Okay, what did you get distracted from? And you, you say, let me see your schedule. What did you plan to do with your time? Most people, most low performers, low contributors, have nothing on their schedule. Nothing on their schedule. Maybe a, do a doctor's appointment or a business meeting. But when you look at most people's calendars, it's blank. It's full of white space. So here's the cardinal truth. You can't call something a distraction from. So if your calendar is blank, you have no right you got to say you got distracted because what did you get distracted from? There was nothing... There's no plans. <laughs> mm. Everything is a distraction unless you know what you want to do with your time and your attention. So by turning your values into time, by saying the person I want to become spends their time this way, that's how we start using this technique called the time box calendar, which by the way has been studied. I didn't create this technique. It's been studied mm. in thousands of peer reviewed studies. It's, it's called making an implementation intention, which is where we plan out what we're going to do and when we're going to do it. It is one of the most effective techniques you can, you can use. Much better, by the way, than the to-do list technique, right? Because to-do lists have no constraints. You can always add more to a to-do list. And in fact, it has many negative repercussions in terms of our psyche because the vast majority of people who keep a to-do list without keeping a calendar don't finish everything on their to-do list. And so what they do at the end of the day, when they look at that to-do list of things that have still not been finished, right? You're reinforcing your identity as someone who doesn't do what they say they're going to do, someone who doesn't live up to their commitments, loser. And so day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you're reinforcing this identity as someone who doesn't follow through on their commitments. And so that's one of the reasons that, that to-do lists are so bad for your personal productivity, as opposed to people who use the to-do, I'm sorry, the time, the, the, the time boxing technique, where time boxing, what you're doing is you're not measuring yourself by how many cute little boxes you checked off. What you're doing is measuring yourself not by how much you finished. That's also not the right metric. What you're measuring yourself by is one thing, which is, did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? Mm. That's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter if you finish. It's, did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? What I said I would, okay? It's on my calendar. By the way, that can be doing work. It can also be spending time with your kids. It can be watching television. It doesn't matter. But did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction? Here's the kicker. People who use that technique, people who turn their values into time and stick to doing what they said they would do on their calendars, they finish more. Mm. They actually get more done than the people who use the to-do list technique. So by looking at these three life domains and, and filling out your calendar by first you, how would the person you want to become, that's the first life domain, how would the person you want to become spend time taking care of themselves? So what does that include? Uh, time for exercise, time for meditation, prayer, reading, whatever you want to do. I'm not saying what you should do with your time. Mm. A big one, by the way, is sleep. How many of us who have kids, you know, we tell our kids, you have to get to bed on time. But having a bedtime is very important. But do we have a bedtime or are we being hypocrites? Mm -hmm. We all know how important. You listen to Huberman, sleep is super important. We've heard this to mm -hmm. death. Mm -hmm. But do you have a bedtime? We need a bedtime. <laughs> right? How simple is that? We have to have that in our schedule. So time for you. By the way, that time for you can also include pay, playing video games or going on social media. Mm. I love social media. I have time in my calendar when I check it, though. I don't check it whenever I have the urge to escape reality, mm. to escape my feelings, which is how most people get distracted by social media. No, I've got that time in my calendar, and it's perfectly healthy. So you are at the center of your three life domains. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others, you can't make the world better. So you've got to plan time for yourself. The second circle the life domain is your relationships. 
part of the reason we have a loneliness epidemic in the industrialized world is that the traditional institutions that we used to have that provided for regular interaction with our friends uh, have become much less popular. So as, as society in the industrialized world became more secular, we don't have the church group like we used to have. We don't have the key club. We don't have the, the, the bowling league. And Robert Putnam wrote about this in the 1990s in his book, Bowling Alone. We have to have those structures in our week, right? The regular interaction with our mates, with our with our community, with our family, that is on our calendar. What tends to happen these days is that people give their closest relationships whatever scraps of time are left over. And that's no way to build a relationship. You have to schedule the time with the most important people in your life. The third life domain is work. And of course, this is how most people spend most of their day. But most people, especially low contributors, low performers, they spend their time 100% on what's called reactive work. Reactive work is a kind of work that's done reacting to things, right? Reacting to notifications, reacting to emails, reacting to phone calls, reacting to meetings, that's reactive work. High performers, high contributors, they spend at least some part of their day doing what's called reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. Planning, strategizing, being creative, thinking for God's sakes can only be done without distraction. So what that means is when you make your time box calendar, of course, some of your time is going to have to be spent doing reactive work, but don't let all your time at work be reactive work. Plan mm. at least some time in your day, even if it's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, some time in your day has to be set aside and protected for reflective work, or you're going to find yourself running real fast in the wrong direction. Yeah. So it's really about making time for traction by turning your values into time, having that time box calendar. That's step number two in becoming indistractable. So if we think about those three things on a Venn diagram, you, relationships and work, it's very easy to see how the work circle could encroach upon you and your relationships. Any idea how to create that balance in the Venn diagram? Yeah, so I, I actually think of it as as three nested circles. So you're mm. at the center, then there's the second ring of the uh, of relationships, and then the third ring of work. Because work can be <laughs> encompassing of the three, but if you don't start with that core of taking care of yourself, of putting those things on your calendar first, your relationship will degrade, and of course, your work will degrade. And so that's why a time boxed calendar is so much better than any other productivity technique out there, especially uh, just using a to-do list. And by the way, I'm not anti-writing things down. Uh, on, that's, that's a good idea. But what most people do when they keep a to-do list, that's all they do. They just keep the to-do list. So they forget the second step, which is to put those tasks in your calendar. So the way you protect your time and make sure that you have sufficient time for your family and your relationships and that you don't neglect those is that you put those in first, right? Mm. You, put you put your bedtime seven days a week in your calendar so that you know, okay, if I want to get up at 6 a.m., well, that means I need to be in bed at 10 p.m. the night before, which means I need to take a shower before, you know, all the personal hygiene stuff. By having that on your calendar, and I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, time boxed brushing your teeth, you know, put in 15-minute increments, let's say, or even 30-minute increments. That's fine. But defining for yourself what you want to do with your time is critical because that's the only way you get any kind of feedback. So one of the biggest problems with just keeping a to-do list is that you have no feedback for how long things take you. And this is a major flaw, right? So we have what we call a planning fallacy. And the planning fallacy says that we're really bad at, at uh, understanding how long things take us. We're very bad at planning that on average, 
it takes people three times longer to finish a task than they estimate. And part of that is because there's no feedback to teach us how long things take. When you keep things on a to-do list, you know, write my novel, start a business, uh, become a millionaire, uh, have a great relationship with my kids, uh, have six-pack abs, those are to-dos. But if you don't plan the time to do those things, you don't learn how long they take you. Mm. So when you say, okay, you know what, I've got a big project to work on, as opposed to finish project, which is on your account, you know, on your to-do list and you, you, you move it from one day to the next to the next to the next to the next until you procrastinate and then, you know, have a deadline, then you rush to finish it very poorly by time boxing it and saying, look, I'm not going to finish, but I'm going to work on this project project for 30 minutes. That's it. doesn't matter if I finish, I'm going to work on it for 30 minutes without distraction. Then what you can do is to say, okay, I worked on this project for 30 minutes. How far did I get? And then I could do some simple math and calculate, okay, if I, you know, if I finished about 20%, then I'm going to need five more increments just like this in order to finish the project. So that's how you use time boxing to start estimating how long things take you. Another thing that's very, uh, and to your question about, you know, how do you shut out other distractions? Mm-hmm. One of the biggest um, uh, pushbacks I get about this technique is, well, what if my boss need, needs me? What if my clients need me, right? I'm in the service business. I need to be constantly available. Well, when you have a, a physical manifestation of a time box calendar, when you can show others your calendar, you can do what's called schedule syncing. And one of the best techniques that I've, I've, uh, I've promoted is using this technique to sit down with your boss and say, look, boss, here's my schedule for the week. Okay. By the way, this takes 10 minutes. If you do this 10 minutes on a Monday morning, you sit down with your boss and say, hey, boss, here's my time box calendar. You see the calendar? Okay, here's where I'm going to have these meetings. Here's where I'm going to have time for email. Here's where I'm going to have time for, for that big project. Now, here's this other list of paper. Okay, you see, you see this other list I have here? Here's all the things that you've asked me to do that I can't fit on my calendar at the moment. Can you help me reprioritize? So you're not saying no. By the way, one of the worst pieces of productivity advice, everybody's heard it. If you want to be more productive, learn how to say no. That's the kind of advice that only a tenured professor can tell you. That is the stupidest mm-hmm. advice. Because if you tell your boss no, you're going to get fired. <laughs> so you're not telling them no. You're asking them, please help me reprioritize. And here's what's your, what you're going to find. If you show your boss that time box calendar, they're going to say, oh, you know what? That meeting is actually way less important than that thing on the on the list that of things that you couldn't fit in. Can we swap that out? And so you're helping your, your boss do their job, which is helping you prioritize. And you're giving them transparency into how you're spending your time. And let me tell you, they will worship the ground you walk on because most bosses have no idea how their employees are spending their time. So what you're doing is, and, and they won't ask you to do this because they don't want to want you to feel like you're being micromanaged. But if you do it yourself, you're doing what's called managing up, right? Managing your manager. Mm-hmm. And it, it will change your life. By the way, you can also do this domestically as well. So my wife and I, we were... We used to get into fights about, you know, domestic responsibilities, right? That uh, my wife would say, "Hey, you know, why, why haven't you taken out the trash, or why didn't you haven't you fed my, uh, you know, fed our daughter, or, or all these things need to get done?" And I would say, "Honey, honey, honey, if you want me to do these things, just, just ask. I'll do them. Just ask." And what I didn't realize is that I was giving her yet another job. Now she has to be my camp counselor, right? Now she mm-hmm. has to be my boss, <laughs> and so I was giving her yet another job. And we never have this fight anymore. Why? Because once a week we sit down and we do a schedule sync and it takes us maybe 10 minutes. She has her calendar. I've got my calendar. We say, okay, our daughter needs to go here and then I need to do this and then make sure this. That 10 minutes of schedule syncing changed our life. We've been married 20 years. This is one of our secrets of success.
mentioned uh, so time boxing um, and the the sort of I guess that pre commitment of, of uh, allocating those periods of time. Uh, you mentioned the the transition times, those liminal moments where we transition between others. Um, we love Adam Grant's concept of um, uh, Grant psychological, psychological transition. Yeah, yeah, third Fraser. space. Adam Fraser, sorry, um, of you know having that deliberate break and that deliberate um, reconnect into the next one. You, you mentioned this is a potentially dangerous area for distraction. Um, any thoughts on on ways to to make that transition a little more effectively and a little less distractibly? Yeah. So so just to fill everyone in, so these liminal moments are these times between things. And uh, they're not bad per se. Uh, what's bad about them is what happens if you don't stop on time. So for example, uh, you're, you're waiting at a red light and you think, okay, well, I've got a few seconds. Let me just check my phone real quick. There's nothing wrong with checking your phone, except when you do it at a red light and the red light turns green, uh, now you got a problem, right? <laughs> you should be moving and the, the, the person behind you is gonna start honking at you. Uh, that's best case scenario. You know, you might get into an accident if you're distracted at the wrong time because of one of these liminal moments. Another good example of a liminal moment is you, you're finished a meeting and now you're on your way back to your desk and you check email. And uh, again, nothing wrong with checking email, but if you do it as one of these liminal moments between tasks, and then you say, oh my gosh, there's this thing I just need to respond to real quick. And then it becomes, you know, five minutes later, 10 minutes later, 15, 20 minutes later, well, now you've, you, you, you've gotten distracted from what you plan to do for the day. So we have to be very careful of these liminal moments and sometimes intentionally not give in to them when we know we have a backstop. And this is, again, why time boxing is so important. When you time box, you know why you got distracted. And this is, this is very important. So being indistractable doesn't mean you never get distracted. Okay, I made up the term so I can define it any way I want. <laughs> being indistractable doesn't mean, doesn't mean you never get distracted. It means... You're the kind of person who is as honest with themselves as they are with others. You strive to work without distraction. Now, does that mean you never get distracted? No, I still get distracted from time to time. But the difference is that an indistractable person realizes why they got distracted and they do something about it. So Poelo Coelho had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. I'll say it again, it's so good. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision distractible people decide to be distractible because they keep getting distracted by the same stupid thing. Okay, fa okay, Facebook, terrible, such a, so, so addictive, let's say. Okay, now what? <laughs> How many times can we get distracted by the same stupid thing before we say enough, I'm gonna do something about it. So a distracted person keeps getting distracted by the same thing again and again. An indistractable person says, ah, okay, I see what you did there, distraction. You got me once, but you're not going to get it, get me again because distraction only has three causes. That's it. Every distraction is either because of an internal trigger, an external trigger, or a planning problem. That's it. It's the only source of all of our distractions. So an indistractable person knows that these, these three reasons exist, and they take plans today. They do something right now to prevent it from happening tomorrow. One of the techniques you talk about um, in terms of just trying to nudge over that that little uh, attention grab is the the concept of surfing the urge, which I've also heard uh, used in in terms of addiction therapy and that sort of thing. And my understanding is the idea is if we can sort of just park the urge for for a few minutes, then uh, it becomes much easier to resist. Um, have you got any techniques that have worked in your life? Um, should we be trying to distract ourselves from the urge with other things? I, I guess that's probably anti the indistractable pieces, but thoughts on, on how to surf the urge? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, a, a bit of, I, I guess, semantics here. So uh, people sometimes ask, well, isn't, isn't distraction good sometimes? Don't, you know, isn't, can't, can't there be such a thing as a healthy distraction? And the answer is no. So by definition, a distraction is something that pulls you away from, from what intent. you actually want to do, right? So, but, so distractions, there's no such thing as a good distraction. There is such a thing as a good diversion. A diversion is just a, a refocusing of attention. That's fine. And we pay for the privilege to be diverted. There's nothing wrong with, you know, going to a movie uh, to escape reality for a bit. There's nothing wrong with reading a book to really get engrossed. I mean, that's the whole joy of it. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. But again, that's what I intended to do with my time and my mm -hmm. attention. So diversions can be very, very healthy. So, uh, for example, this surfing the urge technique is, is a, a, a diversion technique that can actually really help us get back on track and stay away from distraction. And so this comes, I didn't create this, this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. And you asked what I, what I do uh, in my own life. And so this is a technique that I use almost every single day. Uh, it's called the 10 minute rule. And the 10 minute rule acknowledges starting with the fact that, that the traditional techniques that we've heard around uh, getting ourselves not to do something uh, are, are, are not always effective. And what, what do I mean by this? The traditional technique for, to not do something is abstinence, right? You're, you're trying not to smoke, don't smoke. You're trying to, uh, you know, lose weight on a diet. Don't eat the chocolate cake. You're trying to on a digital detox. Don't do it. And it turns out that abstinence for some behaviors is a good idea, specifically when you can remove the triggers. So abstinence, if you're, you know, if you're trying to do a drug rehabilitation, removing those external triggers and, and not having it anywhere in your, 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 your life can, can, can be effective, but you can't escape food. You can't escape technology, right? It's part of our life. The triggers are always there. So abstinence is not a good technique. Why? Because abstinence is like pulling on a rubber band. When you tell yourself not to do something, it's like pulling on a rubber band. You're pulling, you're pulling, you're pulling. You're saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. When you finally give in, when you finally do it, mm -hmm. the rubber band doesn't go back to where it started. No, the rubber band ricochets across the room. And so that's what we find happens when we use strict abstinence. That when you tell yourself not to do something, not to do something, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and you finally give in, you go on a bend the mm. reinforcement becomes the fact that you don't have to tell yourself no anymore. And it turns out this is a big reason why we believe that, that cigarettes are addictive. It's mm. actually we're finding less and less about the nicotine and about the brain chemicals <laughs> and more so about the fact that people who are trying to quit smoking are constantly telling themselves, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then they finally smoke. <sighs> which by the way explains why when people say, why do they smoke, even though they're trying to quit, it relaxes me. Well, that makes no sense. Nicotine is a stimulant. Mm. Why is it relaxing them? Because it provides them relief from not having to tell themselves no. So what you wanna do is to not tell yourself no, what you wanna do is to tell yourself not yet. Because when you tell yourself no, you're eliciting what's called psychological reactance. Psychological reactance is this instinct that we all have that when we are being told what to do, we rebel. So when your mom told you, put on a coat, it's cold outside, and your knee-jerk reaction as a kid was, don't tell me what to do, or your boss tries to micromanage you, and you know how that feels, right? Mm. That's reactance. Now, here's the crazy bit. The brain experiences reactance even when it is our own minds telling us what to do. <laughs> That's how crazy our, our brains are. So just because you tell yourself to do something, you may also experience a psychological reactance. So how do we disarm reactance? How do we disarm this, this rebelliousness uh, in, our, in our own heads? 
The way we do that is not to tell ourselves no, it's to tell ourselves not yet, which is where this technique that I use all the time called the 10-minute rule comes in. The 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any distraction. So whether it's uh, you know that chocolate cake that you're trying to avoid because you're on a diet, whether it's checking email because you're trying to get some work done, the 10-minute rule says you can give in to that. You're, you're, you're a grown human being. You can do whatever you want, but not right now, in 10 minutes. So what I do almost every single day is when I'm writing and I feel these, these internal triggers bubbling, right? Uh, this is boring. This is hard. Uh, is anybody going to read this? Is this any good? Uh, and all I want to do is check email for a quick minute or go Google something or go read some research that can take me out of the actual work I have to do. I tell myself, okay, I can do that in 10 minutes. Mm. So I'll set a timer for 10 minutes. I'll sit there for a second. And now I have a choice to make. There's a fork in the road. I can either get back to the task at hand, get back to my writing, or surf the urge. Now, surfing the urge acknowledges that these sensations, these uncomfortable emotional states, the boredom, the insecurity, the, the, the fearfulness, the stress, the anxiety, all the internal triggers that bubble up that we want to ex escape that lead to distraction, those emotions in the minute, they feel like they're always going to be with us. However, what we know is that these emotions are transitory. They're like waves, they crest and then they subside. And so we can ride these waves like a surfer on a surfboard. And so there's a certain script that we can use while we are uh, surfing the urge that gets us through those 10 minutes. Now, what you will find is nine times out of 10, when you allow yourself to surf the urge, you will very easily drift back into doing the work or doing the task that you said you were going to do. And if you, after 10 minutes, have that desire and you still want to go check email, fine, go do it. But what you will find is that because nine times out of 10, this technique is very effective, it doesn't have to be 100% effective. What you're going to find is that you're building your own self-efficacy. You're proving to yourself, wait a minute, actually, I can wait out these feelings. I don't have to believe everything my brain thinks. I don't have to do every, uh, I don't have to escape every uncomfortable sensation. And so what happens is over time, the 10 minute rule becomes the 12 minute rule, becomes the 15 minute rule. And over time, you're building your capacity to work without distraction for longer and longer periods of time. Now, you've mentioned boredom a couple of times. It's something I find interesting. And certainly, while Plato might have been distracted, he arguably didn't have the same level of stimulus that, that we currently do. Do you advocate uh, scheduling it a time box session to do nothing, to, to allow yourself to get bored? If that's what you want, <laughs> if that's what you want. So we know that there's a, a very heavy correlation between the, the valence that we assign to tasks and their effect on us. What does that mean? So uh, for example, there was a beautiful study done that found that, you know, we, we've all heard that there's, uh, you know, social media is bad for you, that social media is melting your brain and it leads to depression, anxiety, blah, blah, blah. Well, a study found that actually there's no correlation between how long the study participants spent on social media and how they felt emotionally and, and, and the symptoms associated with depression. What was correlated was how they felt about social media. So you could spend lots and lots of time online, but if you felt this was perfectly healthy and wonderful, no correlation with any kind of mental health symptoms. But if you believed that, that, that social media was bad for your brain, well, then you did have symptoms of depression associated with using social media a lot. And so the same goes with any task. If you believe that spending time being bored is good for you and you want to schedule that time, do it. But if you feel like, oh, this sucks, mm -hmm. I don't like it, I'm no good at it, I'm not getting anything from this, it's not going to serve you.
which is why we, we need to stop with these blanket statements of, oh, meditation is good for everyone. No, there's actually studies that find that meditation is not good for everyone. Yoga, everybody should do yoga. Well, no, only if it actually benefits you. It might be just as therapeutic for you to take a walk or play video games or do something else. It's about doing what you want to do with your time. The most important thing you can get from be becoming indistractable is self-efficacy, is believing that you have the power to shape how you feel, how you think, and what you do with your time in your life. That's the most important gift that this gives you. Neil, we're about to release our online courses for the Resilient Shield, and you wrote a wonderful article in um, HBR called How Customers Get Hooked on Products, which piqued my interest. How would customers get hooked on our online courses? How, how would your customers get hooked on your course? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that's a whole nother discussion <laughs> in terms of how we build products that I mean, the, the, the basics uh, is, is actually using a lot of the same literature that informed what I learned about fighting distraction uh, also informs how we can build healthy habits. And it, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it, mm. it, they're actually uh, complementary that I believe that we can use technology to build good habits in our lives uh, and excise the bad aspects, the bad distractions in our life. So, uh, so it, it comes down to, to making the kind of product and service that people use because they want to, not because they have to, mm. uh, especially when it comes to online education. Uh, and again, I, I haven't seen your course, so this isn't a judgment on your course. I'll just tell you what I've seen <laughs> work and not work out there when it comes to, to online education. Most online education subjects these poor students to something that is incredibly boring. <laughs> and, it's, and the reason it's incredibly boring is because they, they took an offline model uh, which is essentially, you know, the, 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 what traditional education looks like, which is a sage on a stage, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blahing about a subject that they're so knowledgeable in, and you students have to sit here and listen. Well, that kind of worked. It didn't even work all that well, I would argue, offline, uh, but it kind of works because students have to sit there, right? You can't leave in the middle of a, of a university lecture because you've got people all around you who are going to see you walking out of the room. So it forces you to sit in the chair. Well, with online education, and this is true for children as well as executives, there's too many options, right? I don't want to, this course is boring. This guy isn't keeping my attention. Uh, he's not interesting enough. So I'm going to go check some email or I'm going to go on Snapchat or I'm going to go do something else. So in, in an online setting, it's very difficult uh, to sustain attention using the same methods of just someone, you know, jibber jabbering at you. So I guess my best piece of advice was is to make sure you keep it interesting that you keep it engaging uh and so there's a few ways to do that one is the content itself mm. a second technique is to use cohorts and so this is something i'm a big proponent of is when we teach teach with a class right teach with people who are keeping you accountable who are keeping you uh engaged in that course so more student discussions more uh, uh cooperative assignments so that we're all doing this together so that 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 social aspect keeps people uh, engaged. Now, this is very broad strokes. Again, I haven't seen what, mm. what you're doing, but I think those are maybe some some quick tips. That's good. Back That's to the drawing board. Yeah. <laughs> well, Neil, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I think we're creeping towards the end of the time box that you've, you've probably got allocated for this chat. <laughs> One last question, though, that we, we ask many of our guests. Do you have a power song? We're very interested in what sort of motivates people in a musical sense. <laughs> Okay, so let's see, a power song. Um, it's hard not to think of anything but I have the title when you say uh, power song, but I'm sure I'm not the first person who said that. <laughs> but I think, okay, so I'll tell you what I actually use. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't listen to 
eye of the tiger when I'm, <laughs> when I'm doing work. But what I will actually use uh, when I'm writing is uh, I need to have music uh, that doesn't that I can't understand the words <laughs> because if I if there's music any kind of music where if it's in English. I, I can't concentrate. So um, I, I will either listen to classical, I'll listen to jazz. Um, there's an, uh, an app I use a lot called Endel, E-N-D-E-L, that plays uh, like just random, I guess, computer generated beats. Uh, mm -hmm. that, 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 that would be my power song. It's just listening to something I don't understand. Fantastic. <laughs> well, hopefully people will understand this uh, this podcast because there was a lot of gold in there. Really appreciate your time and your candor and wisdom, Nir. Thank you. Oh, my, my sincere pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence and would love your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, let us know. You can get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Until next time, we wish you luck in filling your unforgiving 60s with some quality distance run.